Kia ora, and welcome to the Kaka. This is a uh, one-off um, podcast I'm doing in conjunction with a post I'm doing in response to an awful lot of blowback I got yesterday via Twitter and some email from the column I did on eliminating the elimination strategy. Uh, the hist- headline was um, "Time to Eliminate the Elimination Strategy?" question mark Which uh, I then tweet- tweeted around. Um, a lot of people reacted straight to the tweet as if uh, I was suggesting that we should eliminate our elimination strategy now. Which hopefully those who read the entire piece realised was not the case. My view is that we should uh, vaccinate as many people as possible as fast as possible, use lockdowns where necessary to um, squash the virus and uh, keep our current situation with uh, MIQ and our tight borders until we get to vaccination rates of closer to 90% or higher, particularly for our most vulnerable communities. So that's an intense process that is not going to finish realistically until midway through next year, where we hope, of course, that there will have been approvals for vaccinations for under 12s and that we will have, of course, completed the vaccination of the 12 to 15-year-olds. So um, just to uh, respond to those who are accusing me of wanting to um, drop the whole thing right now, that's not the case at all. So um, you, some may say, well, um, that's actually the government's policy, so what's your problem? And it is true, when you read the documents and the overall public tone of the SCAG report, which, remember, was um, started pre-Delta and eventually toughened up uh, with its final letter to essentially say we had to keep the elimination strategy for now until until everyone had had a chance to vaccinate. But uh, I went to the forum where it was announced and listened to all the speeches and the forum session that was held uh, where all the experts spoke to each other. And it sort of dawned on me as I was listening that um, on the face of it, they were saying, yes, we want to build a system to open up next year. But in actuality, given the intense pressures of Delta, and this was before our outbreak and the lockdowns, they were saying, we're going to stick with elimination. We actually don't have a choice. It uh, was catalyzed for me when Ashley Bloomfield said in the panel session that uh, it wasn't possible to vaccinate our way out of this pandemic and that uh, vaccination would have to be done and it would help, but it wouldn't solve the issue. And that's where we, uh, I think... um, I needed to push back and say, hey, no one's actually really talking about opening up. In fact, we're doubling down and bedding in the public expectation that we can eliminate forever. And my aim was to try and challenge that and show people that the infectiousness of Delta and the eventual need to open up would force us to make some uncomfortable decisions next year. And uh, I wanted to also point out the restrictions we have in our uh, public health system, certainly compared to Australia and um, to where it should be. So um, 
I've included in this uh, comment piece, the text comment piece that's going out as an email to all of the Kaka subscribers, uh, sort of a, a summary of the pushback I got and the various um, accusations and uh, good arguments back at uh, my point of view. And I've given also some of the um, uh, comments and support on Twitter, at least, uh, of the um, attempt to try and have a debate about opening up. Uh, so just to give you a brief summary of what people uh, said about the column online. Uh, firstly, uh, I was a nervous Nelly and a sociopath for suggesting that we open up and I needed to shut up and be patient. Fair enough. <laughs> um, there were some who said I was sentencing their under 12-year-old children to death before they'd even have it, had a chance at vaccination. Uh, that is, um, you know, I can understand that point of view. And certainly uh, without the opportunity for vaccination, it's going to be really tough for a lot of people to uh, agree to an opening up. Uh, however, um, by the time we get there midway through next year, I think there is likely to be some vaccination options for under 12s. And also we'll have a clearer idea of the effects on transmission rates of uh, very widespread vaccination in New Zealand and also a clearer idea of what the passive um, uh, measures to prevent transmission will be. When I say passive, I'm talking about the wearing of masks in public, the strict rules on um, uh, social uh, social distancing, for example, you know, gaps in queues, um, numbers of people in supermarkets at the same time, the size of big events, um, the rules around those big events in terms of how closely people can sit together, those sort of baseline protections against transmission. I was also accused of um, prioritising the economy and business interests over people's health, which, you know, I, I get that. And certainly um, New Zealand made the right choice at the beginning of last year, well, not the beginning, in March last year, when, because we had a few extra days of time and because the Prime Minister and the broad business communities had seen the impact of letting COVID get out of control and New Zealand was in a unique position with a massive moat and just that little bit extra time to lock down hard and early and the Prime Minister and the government and the business community and the um the civic community, I'm talking about um, the medical communities, the academic communities, all got together and made it work. And that is fantastic. And what we found was that the, the framing of the debate of it's a economy versus health, i.e. there were trade-offs, and a lot of economists and various people like to, politicians like to see the world in terms of trade-offs and that it's a zero-sum game. What we discovered, of course, it wasn't economy versus health, it was economy equals health. And so staying uh, COVID-free turned out to be fantastic for our economy relative to others. And because there was so much stimulus and our housing market <laughs> went so nuts, uh, our um, economy has done particularly well. And the argument is um, that many people made, which was, um, why do we need to give up elimination? It worked perfectly for our economy. And um, 
you know, I can I can get that point of view uh, as well. But I don't think with Delta, it's possible to keep our economy effectively closed like we have. Uh, at some point, we have to produce things and export them, and also import things, and have uh, international investors and invest in assets overseas. And at some point, we have to be able to go overseas to see those people negotiate those deals actually be in person. There's only so much you can do via Zoom. But that wasn't actually the main argument I was making for opening up. My main argument was a humanitarian one in which that, you know, sometimes you have to ask yourself the question, what is it you live for? What is the thing that really matters? Well, for me, and I'm guessing for a lot of other people, the thing that really matters is at the end of the day, is um, your connections to your family and your friends and those experiences and those obligations and rights that you feel you have and need to exist as a human. So uh, being there for your friends and family when they're in crisis, um, being there when your parents are dying or your children are dying, being there for funerals, being there for births, being there to help um, sons and daughters bring up kids, um, being there for family events, being there for weddings. Uh, essentially, that's what we live for. And right now, there are hundreds of thousands of New Zealanders living overseas who want to come back for these major events, and they're being prevented because, understandably, our MIQ is limited in size. A lot of people are still asking the question, why don't we just increase the size of MIQ? Well, um, as the government's pointed out regularly, we don't have either the facilities, which are properly airtight and able to support all of those people living for two weeks in their rooms. So that means having kitchens and having all the support staff around it, making sure that it uh, has the right ventilation and uh, all the other things, plus having the staff to um, manage this. And, uh, of course, the more MIQ rooms you have, just simply as a matter of statistics, um, the bigger the chances that you're going to have a breach. So what's effectively happened is that the size of MIQ has fallen uh, in terms of the number of rooms able to be used regularly because of some changes in practices to make them tighter. We've moved to separate cohorts of people so that we don't have plane loads of people who came here at different times um, mixing with each other. And, of course, um, attempts to try and increase the size of it uh, are just um, very limited because of the issue with finding labour. Um, at some point, of course, we're going to have to think about building some sort of permanent MIQ facility, and if we're going to stick with elimination well into next year, you have to think about how we do that and uh, what that looks like. Uh, but um, the point of this is to say that having those very limited places in MIQ forces some really tough decisions. And, you know, there are a lot of people who want to come home for uh, to, to be there when their, their friends and family are passing away or funerals and the like. And at the moment, they're, they're stopped. And the stories that we're hearing from people overseas are just heart-wrenching. And I'm sure everyone listening to this will have heard will know of friends and family who are in that position, not to mention those people living in New Zealand who want to go and um, be there for those moments overseas and are worried that they might not be able to get back in um, or can't get um, into the other country. And that's certainly the case with Australia at the moment. So um, that's that was actually my main argument for um, uh, looking to open up next year 
the pure humanitarian argument. But there are real um, economy arguments as well. And uh, when you read between the lines of what we're hearing from the business community, we sort of got lucky last year in that uh, a lot of the commodity prices for our commodities stayed high. We did extraordinarily well, really, in exporting an awful lot of uh, fruit and meat and fish and dairy um, into places that needed it. But as the uh, shipping systems become even more stressed, um, and particularly as we go into elimination and have to pare back the number of flights that come in, that becomes more and more difficult. It also becomes more and more difficult to maintain that level of exports and imports and investment when you can't physically go and make the new deal, make the new contact, win their trust, all of those things. Um, it's no mistake or uh, um, error to you know have people like NZTE and then others say that you actually need to get into the market physically to um, interact. And you can rely on Zoom and the likes for some time. It's a bit like burning through fat. Eventually you get to the bone and you need to go over there and do the work. So um, various responses, mainly around um, just hang in there, Bernard. <laughs> we'll get there and uh, we'll beat this just like we beat the last one. Well, clearly Delta is a much tougher prospect. And yes, we obviously do need to beat it this year and get everyone vaccinated. I'm saying next year that uh, we need to um, realise that beating it, the cost of beating it, is so much higher than the cost of opening up. And not in any sort of um, bland economic sense. The, you know, the, the well, not that you can measure these things and you certainly want to, don't want to put a dollar value on them. But all of those um, uh, missed visits to... Um, to hospices, the missed funerals, there is a cost. There is an enormous hole that people feel. You know, they wake up in the middle of the night thinking, if only I'd been there. And you you can't ignore that. I know some people say, well, if you went overseas and now you can't get back, well, tough for you. You should have stuck here like the rest of us. Well, it's not realistic or frankly very humane i know i've heard people say that serious people say that well put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself the question have you ever been overseas of course we a lot of people have and um none of those people uh, were doing it for flippant uh, reasons certainly if they left post-covid uh, and now they're in a position where there are no miq uh, places And if anything, as we go into elimination, there's going to be even fewer MIQ places. Um, uh, Those are the main uh, arguments uh, against um, the point of view of let's look at opening up next year. And I just wanted to respond to some of them, uh, have already in a way, but I wanted to point out that um, as we learn more about MIQ, we realise that the only way to stay with the elimination strategy is to tighten the border controls, to use lockdowns aggressively, to um, obviously bring in the much more aggressive uh, social distancing, QR code uh, rules. And I can see how if you were to have a complete elimination strategy, you can say goodbye to the mass events. It's just not 
possible, I, I think. Um, the idea, too, that we can go for 18 months without a proper lockdown. When we have um, MIQ open to a reasonable extent, 4,000 is what we currently have, and there's already all sorts of grief getting into that. That's 4,000 per fortnight. To give you an idea, Australia have um, a limit of 3,000 per week. And remember, their population is uh, five to six times larger than that. So they effectively um, have... Um, you know, a significantly less, significantly lower number of people coming into MIQ per head of population than we do. And so you can see uh, that, that MIQ is going to get even tighter and tighter as we look to keep the elimination strategy going. So that's more pain for a lot of people. And uh, you're going to see the sorts of fights where lots of people talk about the humanitar humanitarian reasons for those slots, the government is going to prioritise some of those slots for movie directors and billionaires and uh, sports teams, and that's going to get painful. Uh, and I'm saying at some point next year we have to open up those MIQ slots, allow more people in, and also um, you know try these um, home isolation tools. But again, with Delta, it is you get one breach and then you're into lockdown for six weeks, which is where we are at the moment. You'd essentially have to accept permanent lockdown. And that, um, you know, for a lot of people, for their mental health, for their ongoing family and social lives, not to mention the business impacts, that's just not possible. And I just wanted to put that out there because no one's really going there at the moment who wants to be electable and employable and that's my job as someone who is unelectable and unemployable to go out there and uh, say some things that people may be saying to themselves privately and behind the scenes but are reluctant to go out there in public so um uh, that's what i'm saying that delta means we're going to have smaller miqs that there will be occasional suspensions of all flights now, that's a real problem for our exporters and for importers, too, because uh, a lot of particularly pharmaceuticals come in on flights. They're not uh, on ships. We're also going to see, you know, suspension of MIQ places, which is what we've seen last night, MB announcing that um, for a few days it's not going to issue any more places in um, uh, MIQ or re-offer those places that were cancelled. Um and the Crown Plaza, for example, is in the process of being closed as the current cohort are worked out. So um, as they work out whether, whether or not the various pathways and atriums are risky. So that's another, you know, several hundred, hundred spaces in the Crown Plaza that uh, won't be available. And uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, at some point we have to do some sort of... Um, uh, wider well-being cost-benefit analysis, the cost of staying closed and the risk of um, people who are unvaccinated and who've chosen to be unvaccinated or are unable to be vaccinated. So that there will be plenty of people who are immunosuppressed. There will be kids. And um, obviously you need to um, think about the risks of those people getting COVID. At the moment, um, there are quite a few young people overseas, particularly in America and in Australia and the UK, who are getting COVID. The, the research that I've seen hasn't come back yet on 
exactly what the rates of hospitalization and deaths are. They're certainly lower than for older people, but they are real and they are there. So that's something to think about. But to say that um, that's going to stop us from all opening up, particularly by the middle of next year when a lot of those vaccinations will be available. And then we have the absolutely you know, awful discussion that people are having in the States right now about what value you put on hospitalizations of deaths of people of people who have chosen not to vaccinate. And uh, it must be an awful position to be in for those people in hospitals and ICUs, seeing people come in who are anti-vaxxers, who are sick, obviously treating them, and then seeing if they are maxed out. Those people who did vaccinate, um, those people who can't vaccinate, being locked out of uh, space. So that's another debate for another another day. <laughs> that will get me into all sorts of trouble. Anyway, that is um, a bit of a follow-up to yesterday's piece, which has been uh, among the most read and downloaded that I've done for the Kaka so far. A little bit more than I expected, to be honest. Uh, and most of the debate, certainly on Twitter and various other places, has been very respectful and thoughtful and fair, and I appreciate that. So thank you very much. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was a look at how uh, and why we will eventually have to open up, and we'll have to do it sooner than most voters want to and sooner than the broad view in the public is right now. And just to remind you on where the public is on it, uh, the focus grouping and the polling shows significantly tougher approach, a significantly tougher view from median voters on lockdowns and tight borders than even the government, even some of the um, medical communities and certainly businesses think. And that's a that's one of the reasons I wanted to uh, flag this as an issue, because we are digging ourselves in for elimination, and the risk is that we dig ourselves so deep in we can't get out in a political sense, and that is a not fantastic place to be. And I think the government, to their credit and understandably, are making it up as they go along is too too flippant. Um, certainly in such a fast-changing environment, um, you have to pivot and change and adjust and um, course-correct, and they've done that pretty well, really, over the last 18 months. But I can see from the tone of the comments and the detail in that forum from a couple of weeks ago that increasingly the people who are making the decisions are betting on elimination for an awful long time, and I think that needs to be challenged. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was another commentary on the Kaka. It's Tuesday, August the 24th.